I'm John chapter 14. I love this passage. Father, we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. You are the Father of glory. We ask you that you would shine the light of your countenance. Shine the light of your countenance upon this gathering even now, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence. We ask you to do what you do best and what you enjoy most. You would take the things of Jesus and impart them to us. We thank you in his name. We pray. Amen. Well, tonight we're at session 11 on this uh, course on John chapter 14, Intimacy with the Trinity in John 14. We're going to do session 12 next week. Then we'll be done with John 14 for now. Then in the spring, we will do John 15, Lord willing, and I believe he is. And then John 16 in the summer, and then John 17 next fall, and then we might do a number of other sessions on top of that. It's kind of the overview, because John 13 to 17, as I've said many times, I believe it's the greatest teaching given by the greatest teacher in human history. And it's a passage that's uniquely designed, I believe, to cause the end-time church to walk in victory. Because as I've made the point a number of times earlier in this course, that in John 13 to 17, he speaks it on a Thursday night, but two days earlier on the Tuesday is when he gave the end-time teaching. And he called them not to let their heart be troubled on Tuesday. Now it's on Thursday He's continuing really in the same conversation. Although the passage obviously has been relevant for all of church history, but it has a particular importance of of empowering the end time church to walk in victory in an hour when there's more hostility against the church, greater dimensions of demonic activity and darkness, but the church will never be more deeply committed to Jesus and the power of love than in that time of history. Roman number one, and I, I say this as always, we'll never cover all the notes. I just put always extra ones in there for your own personal study, but we'll uh, uh, cover some of this tonight. Review, always give a little bit of review. The kind of overriding commandment and exhortation in John 13 to 17, which is right here in John 14, verse one. He's commanding the disciples to not allow trouble to dominate their heart. And he lays out a number of types of trouble that is knocking on their door. And he says, you must resist the troubled mindset and the troubled emotions by saying no to it and speaking my word, my truth and my promises. And if you do that, John 14, verse 27, all my peace will guard your heart. I'll give you supernatural peace if you will resist the normal tendency to allow trouble to dominate your heart and your mind. Paragraph B, John 13 to 17, Jesus is teaching us how to engage our heart, but he specifically identifies four negative emotions and and mindsets. Grief, fear, shame, and betrayal. You can put anxiety in there with fear as well. And Jesus is giving a line-upon-line teaching giving insight into God's promises and truth in his heart so that we could be anchored in our heart, that we could be equipped to walk 
in victory in the time of trouble. Paragraph C, again on Tuesday, just two days earlier, his last message that he gave them, he outlines why the disciples would be facing trouble. And then he adds some more on that Thursday night. In paragraph C, I have seven different reasons why Jesus, seven different types of trouble Jesus identified to them from the Tuesday message of Matthew 24, which is on the end times, and the Thursday message, John 13 to 17. And we covered that in session one, but I wanted to put that in the notes just to remind you. Paragraph D, also in session one, Jesus highlighted eight truths found in John 14 that we have to actively engage with those truths. Because grief and shame and fear and anxiety and bitterness, betrayal, those things naturally really touch our heart in a deep way. And Jesus said, if you will engage with me with these eight truths, you will have power to not allow those negative mindsets to dominate you. Paragraph E, now in this session, we're focusing on this dramatic, awesome promise that is, we're so familiar with it that it often sometimes doesn't move us because we're so familiar with the promise. He promises in, in chapter in John 14, verse 16, that the Holy Spirit will empower even weak and broken people like them, like these disciples that were being weighed down with fear and anxiety and fear and bitterness. They were being weighed down shame. The Holy Spirit will empower us to love God, even weak and broken people. That is such a glorious promise. But the implication is we need to value intentionally interacting with the Holy Spirit in a more intentional way. The Holy Spirit says, I'm really in you and I really will help you, but I really wait on you to engage with me. And we engage with him by taking these truths and bringing them into the conversation. The phrase I've used so many times uh, is we say, thank you, show me more. Every one of these truths, we take, we pause. We thank the Lord for them and ask the Spirit to show us more. And that's the beginning of just little sound bites of conversation that engage the Holy Spirit. Paragraph E, this is stunning. Again, we've said it over and over so we can get used to it, but you just can't really get used to this idea. We are called, the, the redeemed are called to participate in the family dynamics of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The way they interact, the way they love, the way they delight in each other, the way they partner together. Jesus is saying, some of this we are extending to you. But you've got to be intentional to interact with this. Because it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the children of God and the bride of Christ, which are the same. The angels are watching, they're witnesses, but we're called to actually participate in that family dynamic of Father, Son, and Spirit, engaging in that Trinitarian conversation. Not all that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit involved in, but some of it. And that's what John 14 is highlighting. Roman numeral two. Well, the, the, the point we're really focusing on tonight is being empowered to walk in obedient love. Paragraph A, we're gonna go back to uh, session nine where I talked about uh, Jesus' promise to answer our prayer. But the part I wanna connect with here is not just the promise to answer prayer, 
I want to connect that promise to answer our prayers to the power that he will give us to love him. Let's read the passage because a lot of times in verse uh, uh, 12, a lot of times we'll read the promises of prayer being answered and we end it there with blessed circumstances. And Jesus, you'll see, right immediately after he says, I'm gonna answer your prayer, he ties it into prayer to walk in the power and the grace of God to love God. That we're gonna use our faith not just to get blessed circumstances and an anointed ministry, yes, for sure. We're gonna use our faith first to walk in the grace to love him with power in our hearts. Now we believe the other things as well. We wanna do the other things. But Jesus is connecting these two together in a very intentional way. And it's often missed because we'll read verse 13 and 14. I will answer your prayer. We go, yay, and that's the end of the message. And then we start verse 15, love me and obey me. That's another message. And Jesus is saying, no, it's the same conversation. Use your faith to activate grace in your heart to walk with a vibrant spirit, to walk in the power to love me. And again, a blessed circumstances. I like blessed circumstances. I like anointed ministry. But that's not the first priority Jesus pointed out when he gave them this, this remarkable statement of answering their prayer. Let's look at verse 12. He says, the works that I do, you'll do. Like, whoa, that's pretty intense. He goes, well, let's, let, let me really be specific. Verse 13, whatever you ask, Qualifier number one, in my name, I'll do it. That the Father would be glorified, that's qualifier number two. There's two qualifiers. And we looked at that a bit at, in session nine, so I don't want to go through that again. He, goes in, he says in verse 7, 14, he goes, in case you didn't really hear me, I want to say it again. He only repeats a few things in John 13 to 17. When something is repeated in these five chapters, I mean the real estate is really expensive real estate, those five chapters. When a phrase or a truth gets repeated again, take special notice of it. He goes to verse 14, he says, if you'll ask me anything, I'm telling you again. If you ask it in my name, in other words, something I can endorse, something that's in agreement with my plan for your life, I'll do it. Then he says in verse 15, he goes right to the point, he goes, for, for example, for instance, if you love me, he's talking about answered prayer right now, you'll obey me. And the implication is talk to the Holy Spirit about growing in the anointing of love so we can walk in stronger obedience. And he says, well, if you think you're weak and broken, you're weary, he says, all of you are gonna stumble tonight. You're gonna draw back and not stand up for me. You're gonna scatter and leave. You might feel a lot of shame, but I want to tell you this, verse 16. The Father is going to release a helper inside of you called the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll look at that more uh, in next week. Paragraph B, Jesus emphasized twice. I mean, again, that's unusual to have a phrase or a truth emphasized over and over in John 13 to 17 because every phrase is so key. The reason he said... Uh, he says, what you ask so the Father's glorified. I believe the greatest work of the Spirit, I mean the greatest work of the Spirit in human history is, well, when he causes an unbeliever to believe, but beyond that, when he causes that weak and broken human being, that heart, to empower them supernaturally to love Jesus. It's counterintuitive to the human spirit to do that. 
It's our desire to just do our own thing, but to be anointed with a vibrant spirit to love God. A, a God, Jesus, we can't see and we don't always feel or understand, but to love him, that takes the power of God to love God. Yes, we're going to pray for miracles. I mean, we're going to pray for greater works and miracles and healings. But we're doing it from a place of loving Jesus, and we're doing it for the purpose of seeing other people love Jesus. It's easy to get captured with the vision of an anointed ministry about having an exciting ministry. There's, there's nothing wrong with being excited about your ministry. But Jesus is saying, let's anchor this. You're doing it because you love me and you're wanting to produce love in the people that I'm using you to touch. It's not so they're enamored with you, it's that they're loyal to me. That's what he's saying in this. Let's look at uh, paragraph C. Well, I just said that, that he said, ask anything. He says it twice. And then he immediately says, he talks about loving him, the grace of God to love him. The Father is glorified most. Because he says, pray prayers that will glorify the Father. Nothing glorifies the Father more than weak and broken people walking in the grace to love and obey him with loyal love. That is stunning. That's remarkable. That is supernatural for that to happen. And we need to have that in our awareness that Jesus was making that part of supernatural ministry that's really important to him. Paragraph D. Well, going back two days, he just said this two days ago to them. On the Tuesday, he stood before them. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart in Matthew 22, verse 37, 38. Then he says something unusual that you don't find in other places. He goes, I want you to know that loving God with all your heart and all your strength, that is the first priority to my Father. That is a remarkable statement. That word first. It's easy to overlook the implication that Jesus said, this is what is first. This is what the Holy Spirit, if he's, the Spirit is speaking to you, people say, what's the Spirit saying? What's the Spirit? Pro I promise you, if you're listening, he's talking to you most about loving God, not most about your ministry. He is talking to you about your ministry, or we want him to, but if you're listening carefully, the first thing he's talking to you is ways where you can grow in the grace of God to love him with all your heart. I mean, this is remarkable because we're not left to doubt or to wonder what God wants most. When I stand before Jesus on the last day, I don't have to wonder right now what he's gonna be most concerned and talk to me most about. He's not gonna talk to me most about how big my ministry was, its impact. He's gonna talk to me most about the size of my heart response. I'm positive of it. He called it first. There's no question. We're not left to wonder. That's fantastic that in this age, we know what the pop quiz is going to be on that day. There's not really a pop quiz. We're bringing plenty of notice. But most people, it's going to shock them when they're actually evaluated. We actually have the answer ahead of time. We know what's first. He said that on Tuesday. And now on Thursday in verse 15, John 14, verse 15, when he goes, love me, he's now applying that, love God with all your heart, to himself. He goes, I told you to love God with all your heart, that's first. Now I'm applying it, love me that way. That's what I'm telling you. Make it number one. Paragraph E, this is really important, is that Jesus defined 
loving God as being deeply rooted in a spirit of obedience. And a lot of folks, they, they don't put loving God, they don't anchor it into being deeply rooted in a spirit of obedience. They think of loving God maybe if they cry in a worship service. I love him. I turn on my music and I go, oh, and that, I love that. That's really good. But Jesus is saying, no, it's more than that. It's more than feelings when you're in a worship song. It's a, it, it's a seven day a week thing. Jesus calls us to love God on God's terms. This is really big, really important. We are to love God by God's definition of love. Now Jesus is the most qualified man in human history to define love. And a lot of uh, rhetoric in the culture today that's much of it is, has found its way into the conversation of the church where we're coming up with cultural definitions of what love is that don't agree with Jesus. And while we think this is what love would be, so this is what love must be, and Jesus is saying, no, no, you must love me, on God, on my terms. Love God on God's terms. There's no such thing as loving God, I want to say it really clear, without seeking to obey him. There's no such thing. There's a, a distorted grace message that is getting stronger and stronger where it's a presentation of grace separated from a heart cry to want to obey the Lord. There's these sentimental definitions of love that are growing in the conversation of the culture and the church that minimize obedience. I'm gonna say as a shepherd, with kindness but with clarity, that is a deception. It is a dangerous, dangerous deception. Though you can get a lot of people in the church world to approve of that, that doesn't mean that God's gonna be convinced of it. There is no substitute for obedience, none. Somebody goes, well, I'll do a little bit of immorality, a little bit of drunkenness, do a little this, you know, be dishonest, a little bit of money, but I'll go to a few more prayer meetings. I'll cry at the worship service. Are we, are we even? And the Lord's saying, no, no, we're not even. It's not about earning my love. And the idea is obedience, purity, holiness, faithfulness, that is actually where the liberty of the human spirit is found in the greatest way. Jesus is actually contending for our greatness, for our liberty. He's not saying, I'm God, I forgave you, you're gonna go to heaven when you die. I got one little bad little news to tell you. You have to obey me between now and then, sorry. My father's making me push this obedience thing, no. He's not saying, I got good news, you'll go to heaven, but the bad news, you gotta obey between now and then. No, he's going, obedience will liberate your spirit from shame and fear and all kinds of negative anxieties and bitternesses. You get freedom from that in that course, that trajectory of a spirit of obedience. The superior pleasure, the greatest pleasure of the human spirit is found when God reveals God to the human heart and that we love him back in return. That is the greatest pleasure for the human frame. So Jesus is not kind of embarrassed and a little bit sneaking this in like, oh, I love you, heaven's great. You got to obey me. Heaven is so great, it's going to be a You got to obey me. No, he's not doing it that way. He's going, I am contending for your greatness, for your liberty. You will have pleasure like no other kind of pleasure, spiritual pleasure, when you enter into a greater growth of me revealing my love to you and you giving it back to me. It's a glorious, glorious reality.
Don't let anybody steal this from your heart. Don't let anybody steal this from you. Again, the argument in the culture is, it's so deceptive, and, they, and the ones with the argument are well-meaning. They think, well, hey, we'll make it easier on you, pat you on the back. We'll just keep you stuck in your dark emotions, stuck in your addiction to negative things. No, we want to be liberated. We want to walk free of those things. That's our destiny in the grace of God, and loving God uh, is the way forward. Now, when I say the spirit of obedience, that's a key phrase because there are no super saints, And so what I mean by the spirit of obedience, I'm talking about the guy, the gal, we say yes, we take two steps and we stumble over the things we said yes to. But we don't stumble and say, oh, well, it is what it is. We go, no, I'm at war against this. Lord, no, I want to obey you in this. And yet you stumble again. Yet you rise up and you declare war on it. That's a spirit of obedience. That's still in the pathway of obedience. It's not yielding, stumbling, and saying, ah, it is what it is. I'm stuck here. I'm gonna look for some Bible verses to back it up that it's okay, I do this. Don't go there. But the spirit of obedience doesn't mean you've attained to mature obedience. It means you've set your heart on it. And if you're doing that, you're in the right trajectory to have a vibrant spirit. Paragraph G. Now, loving God is the controlling idea of the rest of, the, of John 14. Jesus is linked loving God to obeying him five times in John 14. Remember, if something is repeated in John 13 to 17, it's really important. This is the most repeated truth in those five chapters. Five times in these next verses, and I have them written right there in front of you. I mean, when you read it, you just... Don't miss the significance of the repetition. It's heaven shouting, this is important. Don't let anyone steal this from your heart. It is your liberty. It is your greatness. It is your inheritance to walk in this. Let me just read it to you. If you love me, keep my commandments, okay? Verse 15, he that has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one that really loves me, okay? Verse 23, if you love me, you'll keep my word, my commandments. Verse 24, he says it negative. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Verse 31, he goes, this is the way I live. I love my father and the evidence is I keep his commandments. He goes, I know the pleasure and the liberty and the freedom that comes in that kind of relationship with my father, a spirit of obedience. Paragraph H, Serving Jesus faithfully, number one, and denying our lustful desires. These are the theater, the arena that God has chosen for us to express our love to him. Jesus takes it personal. When we are faithful in our ministry, and what I mean by faith, serving faithfully, I don't mean when things are going great, the money's there, and people are happy. I mean there's nobody's paying attention to you, The three people that even know you're doing it, they're kind of criticizing you. You don't feel anything in it. And the Lord says, but that's the assignment. I've called you to do that. Stay with it. Why? It's No, they're not even appreciating me. I'm not being honored. I'm not being valued. He says, but I assigned you to do that. And when you do that, I take it personally that you love me. When I begin to connect the dots that when I'm steady in the, the kind of the, routine and rigors of my assignment, 
Because I got a lot of part of my assignment, like everyone that has routine and rigor, is like, I don't really like this, but here's my problem. I like you, <laughs> and you want me to do it. Ah, is there any way you could give me a different assignment? <laughs> he goes, I want you to do these things. And there are things in your home, there are things in your friendships, maybe in the marketplace, maybe in the church ministries. There's all kinds of arenas. But if he's given you assignment, a lot of folks, they're diligent as long as people are approving and watching and looking. But when no one's looking and it gets hard, they kind of look right, look left, and they're not diligent. The Lord says, I, really, it's about loving me. And when I began to see that some time ago, I thought my heart is strangely warmed in some of the difficult parts because I know you like it and I like you. That, wow, if you really know that I'm doing it because I love you, I can do it. I can do this a lot as long as I know you're looking and that you're remembering. Some people think of lust when they say, when I say denying our sinful lust, that's the theater of which, part of the theater of which we express our love to God. When people think about lust, some think lust is sexual immorality. They think that's lust. Well, there is lust in that. But lust includes a lot more than that. It includes covetousness, the way we handle our money, in right ways and wrong ways, anger, bitterness, retaliation. I mean, in the body of Christ, that guy on the worship team did that. You know, I'm gonna teach him a lesson. He's gonna find out he's not gonna get away with that. The Lord goes, no, that's a lust. Deny that lust, and I will take it personally that you're loving me. Bitterness, denying those, complaining, slander, holding our speech, bringing it into agreement with God because we love him and we know he notices. Those, that, and the Lord says, that's the theater of which I have called you to love me. And I thought, well, Lord, why don't you just make it a worship service? If I cry at the worship service and I stay really focused and I don't really look at my phone or nothing, will you count that as? And he says, well, I want you to show it to me in these other ways. But I will take it personally and I will remember it and I will reward it forever, even a cup of cold water that you do, because I take it as personally the way that you love me. Now, paragraph I, paragraph I, each person, every individual has a different struggle. It's according to our personality, it's according to our life circumstances. We each have a different assignment in which we offer our gift of love to God. Every person in this room, people in the same household, have, they have a different personality, a different struggle. They have an assignment that's unique to them. And the Lord says, I mean, I'm just thinking about me. You think about you. I've called you to do this and this and this. And you've got this and this setbacks and challenges and da-da-da-da. You love me in that assignment, and that's your gift of love to me. It's like... And we all want somebody else's assignment because we're imagining that other guy's assignment's easier. But I have found over the years, everyone's assignment has real challenges in it. The way their personality, some people are more uh, prone to fear in this way or, or their addictions to that way or life looks this way or it's that way. And the Lord says, that's the assignment I've given you to offer your gift of love to me. Do it that way. And I will, you won't be disappointed when I answer you on that day. Well, our resistance of sinful lust, whether it's sexual immorality or, or, or some kind of substance abuse or whether it's anger or bitterness, retaliation or just slander and complaining, those are all types of lust. Often our resistance of that as a sincere believer is weak, meaning we're not great at it. You know, we, we, we're really set to not do it. We stumble, set again, stumble, set our heart again, stumble. 
and our, our uh, resistance is weak. Our love is, our love is weak. Our love is flawed, but I have good news for you. Weak love is still real love. It's still genuine. Your love isn't only real when it's mature. Your love is genuine even when it's weak. And so we still offer it to the Lord because it moves him. So don't say, well, I stumble so much, but he sees you get up and declare war on it. That's love. It really matters when you Turn away that lustful desire to slander. Because again, make that lust. To take lust out of just the category of immorality. It's all of these, the lusts of the flesh. The, 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 the desire, our natural desire to give expression to things that are dark emotions and dark thoughts and dark actions. Paragraph J, I just put five expressions you could have 10. I just put a few here. My point here in, in paragraph J is to give you some practical ways that you show love in your purity. You know, overcome, resisting anger is a type of purity. In your humility, refusing to be defensive is a type of, of loving God. That's humility. You're loving God. Someone's coming that corrected you. They don't have a right spirit. They don't even have all the right information. But with a kind heart and an open, teachable heart, you answer, you receive it. You don't have to believe it all, but you act in kindness. The Lord says, that is love for me. You just loved me. And I have these other ways as well. Paragraph K, and, and that list could be 10. I just want to make it bigger. I want to break it down to everyday life choices that really matter to him. And when I see they matter to him, it moves me. I want to do it if it moves him. If he notices and remembers, I'm in. If he doesn't really care, and nobody cares, except for the guy I'm bugging with my bad behavior and my bad words, <laughs> nobody else matters, hey, what? might as well. And the Lord says, no, don't view life that way. Obey my commands with your speech, with your body, with your time, with your diligence and service, even if they don't appreciate you. Obey me, because I commanded you to do it. Paragraph K. Affection-based obedience is the strongest and most reliable type of obedience, especially in the generation the Lord returns when darkness, sinful perversion, demonic activity is going to reach uh, levels, unprecedented levels of human history. The rage, persecution, temptation against the, I mean, Persecution against the body of Christ, but temptation of the human race will, is going to a place far beyond any time in history. But I'm telling you, weak and broken people, there'll be a billion of them. That's a made-up number, of course. But I mean, the end-time church is going to be victorious. People like you and me are going to be empowered to walk in a supernatural grace to obey God. It's remarkable. But I call it affection-based obedience. It's more reliable when compared to duty-based or fear-based obedience. What do I mean by duty-based? Duty-based obedience is the Bible says, this is your responsibility, you ought to do it. You know it's your responsibility, you should do it. That is biblical. There are things we do because we should. And there, there's fear-based obedience, and that's biblical too. If you don't do this, you're in trouble and it will cost you. And that wakes up a lot of folks, fear-based obedience. And it is biblical. If you step across these lines, your life will be far more difficult in these ways. Duty, that, that's good. But the best kind of obedience is affection-based. 
That's the strongest. That's the most reliable. Where you feel his affection a little bit and you feel affection for him. That's what makes obedience pleasurable when it's affection-based. This is depicted so clearly in the Song of Solomon. Where the king, well, in the Song of Solomon, the king is King Solomon, and he has his, the maiden, the Shulamite maiden, who becomes his bride. But Song of Solomon, the spiritual interpretation is King Jesus and his bride, the body of, I mean, his, his people, the redeemed, and the body of Christ, etc. And, uh, uh, you know, his redeemed throughout history. And so the king is describing the loyal, the heart of loyal love of his bride. He says this fantastic sentence. He says, your heart is like a locked garden. Your heart is locked. All of these other influence, you're not moving. You're not yielding. A locked garden, and this is a beautiful, it's a garden that's locked, and all the wild beasts and all the strangers and defiling elements can't get into your heart. Look at you. He's honoring her. You're a locked garden. You're a spring that's locked, a fountain that's sealed. There's no defilement in it. Those fountains in that garden, you're not letting anything polluted in there. This is this, this is this uh, uh, romantic, poetic language of her loyal love. And then later on, the next chapter, chapter five, we get insight into how did she live as a locked garden? And she says, I'm lovesick. That's the truth. When no one's looking, I want his affection. I want to feel it more and give it more. That's where I live. That's my daydream is his affection, receiving it and giving it. I love what Yo Herman, one of our leaders at IHOP here said. He goes, we must be lovesick to be love safe. I thought that was so great. I just stole it. Right there in one of the meetings he said it. Because in the generation of the greatest persecution, the greatest temptation, the, I mean a billion believers can be lovesick and love, therefore love safe. And we're thinking, man, I don't feel that safe right now. But we're, <clears throat> we're at the beginning of a time. We're gonna see an increase of the revelation of his love, the spirit of grace is gonna increase, the power of God, the Lord knows what he's doing. He is his secret weapon, actually. The Lord has a secret weapon for the end time church that Satan completely underestimates, and that is the revelation and impartation of love. He's gonna reveal Jesus as a bridegroom king, not just a king with power, but a bridegroom with burning desire. And the church hasn't seen that much of Jesus that way. And he's not just going to reveal affection. He's going to impart it into the church. And the church is going to feel love in a stronger way than any time of history. And Satan, he completely under, underestimates it. He doesn't think it's going to work. He's looking at 6,000 years of human history saying, I can, I can outrun them any day on this wait and see. And the Lord just saying, read the prophetic scripture. The church, when I return, look at Revelation 19. This is so stunning that John saw this. The church is going to be as a prepared bride, a mature bride ready for her wedding day, equally yoked in love. Satan looks at that and says, it's not gonna happen. Look at history, it's never happened. And the Lord says, you wait and see. I've got some surprises. My end time strategy, my, that's a kind of a crazy way to say it. My secret weapon, it's not really secret, it's all over the Bible, is I'm going to reveal and impart love at a level that, that we've never ever happened in history. God's ultimate purpose for creation is to provide an eternal companion, an equally yoked, a bride that's equally yoked to him in love. That's been his plan from the beginning. 
And the greatest miracle in history, social miracle, is the transformation of the end time church from a Laodicean spirit of compromise to a prepared bride. That's gonna happen within the span of one generation. And I believe we're in the early days of that beginning to increase and unfold even now. I love to say this, the father is raising up a prepared bride for a worthy son. And the enemy will not stop him. And it's gonna be people like you and me and the folks over there all over the earth. He's gonna touch us. He's gonna reveal and impart love and affection to us. Paragraph B. The book of Revelation is the most glorious love story ever imagined. People read the book of Revelation and go, oh, I'm afraid. I go, oh, you're reading it through the wrong lens. You're reading it through the wrong lens. Well, look at these terrible events. Those are judgments against the Antichrist empire. He's at war because he's planning a wedding. He's at war for a bride and a wedding. That's a, the judgments aren't against the church. They're against the great oppressor. He is judgments. He's removing everything that hinders love. And while he's pouring out his judgments on the Antichrist empire, he's orchestrating, I have here in paragraph B, the greatest revival ever. The supernatural transformation of the end time church. The deliverance and salvation of all Israel. And this is gonna be followed, Jesus is gonna follow this by filling the earth with the glory of God when he returns. The whole earth is gonna be filled with the glory of God. That's what comes after Jesus returns. Now, when we look at this, the deliverance and salvation of Israel, I'll just take one of those four things I, I put there. In, Reve in Revelation 12, in the book of Revelation, John saw a woman, and the woman is clearly the remnant of Israel at the end of the age. And this woman, this as being persecuted by the Antichrist and by Gentile nations, and a portion of them, we don't know the percentage, they escape into the wilderness. And there's several different uh, views of where that wilderness and what that looks like. That's not for right now. But here's the point. She is nourished by the Lord and protected from the rage of Satan during that time. Well, Revelation 12, actually, John is very familiar with Hosea. Hosea was the first one that spoke about Israel going to the wilderness at the end of the age. In Hosea chapter 2, look what it says, verse 14, because these two passages go together. You'll only understand Revelation 12 if you understand Hosea 2. You put the two together, and, but John clearly did. God says, I'm going to allure Israel. I'm going to wow her and win her. I'm going to show her things that are going to fascinate her heart about who I am and what I'm going to do with her. This is unbelieving Israel that's escaped into the wilderness, fled persecution. I'm going to bring her to the wilderness. That's the very wilderness John's talking about in chapter 12 of Revelation. Now I'm going to speak comfort. And she's going to sing even in the wilderness. Even before the return of the Lord, even in those months leading up to it, she'll be singing new songs. How is God going to speak to Israel in the wilderness? Well, one thing, he'll speak to her supernaturally. Dreams, visions, all kinds of things undoubtedly angelic encounters, but another thing, he's gonna to speak to Israel through your voice, through your songs, and she will sing songs even in the wilderness. That's a, a big subject here. This is, I'm, I can't spend time on it, but I love it. I just wanted you to go, whoa, if you're unfamiliar with this. Will somebody go, whoa? Okay. There you go, I heard it. Okay, and here's what they're gonna sing. Here's what they're gonna sing. 
You're gonna, here's the Lord speaking to Israel. You will call me husband. Israel's going, what? I thought you were the sovereign, transcendent God that if we go near you, we'll die. If we see you, we'll die. You will see something you've never seen. You will call me husband. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, you heard me right. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, kindness, mercy. The implication is the first commandment, loving God with all of her heart, feeling loved and loving in return. That's right at the centerpiece of the storyline of the book of Revelation. Look at paragraph C. Jesus' plan in the book of Revelation is so glorious it's so glorious. Again, the negative is against the Antichrist kingdom. There is persecution, but you know, there's 403 verses in the book of Revelation. There's only 12 verses about the people of God being persecuted. 3% of the book of Revelation is about persecution. Most of the book of Revelation is about God's vindicating of his people and breaking and intervening to stop the oppressor through the prayers of the saints and all these other things. It's a glorious storyline. I mean, it's, it's a glorious storyline. It's gonna be so moving that the end time church will love him. Matter of fact, Revelation 12, this is the very verse, the, past, the same passage that we just read from that, wilderness, that uh, Israel's like the woman who went in the wilderness and got nurtured. I just read it in the last uh, paragraph. He's talking about in verse 11, the saints are gonna overcome Satan. The sa Satan does not believe this for one moment. He is not expecting this. He has no idea the significance of the power of love. He's never seen it. It's never been shown on this scale in human history, the power of love. His, Jesus is gonna reveal his love and then impart it in the people back to him. It's gonna be supernatural. It takes God to love God. They're gonna overcome Satan. So much so, look at the end of verse 11. They will lose their life gladly before they deny the Lord. Even at the threat of death, they will be lovesick. They'll be loyal in love even in the face of death. Now right now it's natural in our normal human thinking to think of future persecution. Oh my goodness, the Lord says, you don't know how much I'm gonna help you. That these overcomers are not super saints. They're folk. They're people like us. But I've got a surprise. There's gonna be an impartation, a revelation and an impartation of love that's more than you think. It's interesting that the saints will overcome Satan spiritually because they won't yield to his threats. Even if they die, they go, die, I die. He's the resurrection. In one second, I'll be in his glorious presence. I'm not backing away from that. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of dying. They overcome Satan spiritually. It's interesting that in the next chapter, chapter 13, verse seven, I don't have it here, Satan overcomes them physically through persecution and martyrdom. But they overcome him spiritually because they don't yield to it. They don't yield to fear. They go, we love him. It's worthy. He's worth it. Are you kidding? One moment I'm dead and I'm forever in the presence of indescribable beauty forever. Satan is not counting on this. More in the book of Revelation, a storyline is chapter 22, verse 17. I call this one of the most significant, informative prophecies, of uh, end time prophecies. 
There are so many levels of application to this one sentence. I remember giving a message once I gave the 15, not that there's only 15, 15 implications to this, what this sentence means. The spirit and the bride will say come. I mean, that will affect the worship movement, the songs that are written, the sermons that are talked about, preached. They'll talk about the conversations in family gatherings. It will be the type of leadership. There's so many implications to this sentence. The body of Christ will love Jesus. They will see him not only as a king with power, but also as a bridegroom with desire, desire for relationship. They'll go, you're a lovesick bridegroom with all power. You're a bridegroom king. You're a bridegroom king, and we want to, we see who we are for the first time. We're a cherished bride. We're not just weak and broken people. We're cherished by the most powerful, beautiful king that has ever been conceived of in history, and we are your eternal companion forever. Beloved, that's gonna shift the, um, even the emotional chemistry of the body of Christ to see this more and more and more. Paragraph E, for the first time in church history, in 2,000 years of church history, God, the Spirit is going to universally reveal Jesus as a bridegroom. The Bible's always been clear. He is a bridegroom. But the Spirit has never universally emphasized it. And when the church sees Jesus as a bridegroom with passion for his people, they will see themselves as a cherished bride. It's never happened in history. There's always been a little group here or there through church history that has seen a little bit of this. But this is the spirit on the church in her bridal identity worldwide in unity with the Holy Spirit saying, come Lord Jesus. Paragraph F, we can pray, come Lord Jesus, as a bridegroom. Because when a bride says come, they're calling him forth as a bridegroom king, not just as a king. We can pray, come Lord Jesus, in three ways. We can say, come near us. That's intimacy with God now. That's the breakthrough in our heart. We can pray, come to us. That's revival, a breakthrough in our region or our city. We can pray, come for us. That's the historical eschatological breakthrough when he comes in the sky. We can pray all three of those prayers. Paragraph G. Well, the bridegroom revival, that's just the term I use. It's not a biblical term, but it's a biblical idea. I believe that uh, this is going to be one time in history because the Lord's never, the Spirit has never revealed Jesus to a billion people as a bridegroom. Most of the body of Christ, even to today, they see him as a king with power and a savior that forgives. And some believe he's a healer that touches our bodies and some economic miracles here and there. But he's all of those, but he's more. It's not the, the Spirit and the army, it's the Spirit and the bride saying, Come. Yes, we are the army, we are the family, we are the kingdom, but only one time in history does the church see herself as a bride, universally across the body of Christ, I mean worldwide. Well, this end time revival is far different than all the revivals of history. This bridegroom end time revival, I've been a student of revivals, and most of the revivals of 2,000 years that I've studied mostly people are coming to salvation. They're becoming born again. They're seeing the power of God touches them, and they see Jesus as their Savior, and they give their life to him. And then the second thing that happens, the revival, if it stays in power, you know, for some years, it raises up a dedicated workforce. People become dedicated servants of the Lord. They'll witness. They'll do anything. They're a dedicated workforce. Some revivals, not very many, had the extra added dimension of holiness. Most of that 
Most revivals, they lost that pretty quick. But this, you know, they had it for a while. But mostly born again and a dedicated workforce. And Jesus, the Spirit, could say something like, something's coming never seen in history. It's a bridegroom revival. I mean, a bridegroom revival. He is coming after our hearts. It's not I just want your workforce. I don't want you just as a workforce. I don't just want you in heaven. I want all of you now in this age. I'm coming after your heart. I'm coming after your heart. I'm going to show you my heart like no time in history ever in any other revival, but it's going to be an invasive revival. He says, I want your time, your money. I want everything about you. It's a bride, not just a king with power looking for a workforce, but a bridegroom with desire, invasive, coming after everything we're about. That's what the end time revival is going to look like. Paragraph H, my point tonight in this message Paragraph H here is, is to raise up messengers. Well, I mean, I want to stir hearts, but, but my, one of my main points is I believe the Holy Spirit's raising up messengers about this message, to, to see it in the book, to see it in John 13 to 17. I mean, five times in John 14, love and obedience are married together. I mean, no other theme is emphasized that much in John 13 to 17. I mean, you see uh, the signs of it all through the book of Revelation when you see through the lens of a bride. You see the book of Revelation as a love story, not as a horror story, as a glorious love story. Holy Spirit's raising up messengers. Here's what they're gonna do. They're gonna reveal the cherishing heart of Jesus. Again, he doesn't just have power and authority. He cherishes it tenderly. Ephesians 5, Paul said, he will cherish and nourish his end-time church. He will show his tender, cherishing heart as a bridegroom. This is going to change the body of Christ. Raise up messengers that proclaim that Ephesians 5, 29 message where Jesus cherishes his church and cleanses her with the washing of the water of the word. And messengers that call others to define loving Jesus as the highest priority, the absolute highest priority. They will make encountering his heart the number one focus of their life and ministry. Now that might sound, well, that sounds obvious. It isn't obvious. I remember, this is like way back in 1990, like 30 years ago. I remember just being at a regular conference preaching on the first commandment. You know, the first commandment, Jesus said, love me with all your heart. This is first, then be great. I remember a well-known, very well-known, prestigious seminary professor who's written many books, and he's been in ministry many years. He came up to me, and uh, he said, I gotta tell you something. He goes, I've been a seminary professor for years. I've written books. I'm a scholar, Hebrew, Greek, and heard thousands of sermons all my life. He said something was shocking to me. I've never one time heard a message on the first commandment, ever. I, I didn't do that like, oh my gosh, you old sinner. I didn't do that, but I just, I just went, really? It's startled me. He goes, never once. I remember going and speaking at a, some big mega church in Brazil, and like 40,000 people, the church, like how many services every weekend, blah, blah, blah. Guy's been in ministry 40 years. I taught on the first commandment. He came to me. He's been in ministry 40 plus years. He goes, 40 years. This is the first. He goes, I missed it. I've never done this. He goes, Lord, I don't know how many years I got left, but I got to realign to this. And my, those are just two little examples in my little world. My point is, a lot of you, this is normal in your thinking. Like, of course, I'm going to proclaim this message as first. 
But I don't think it's that normal, but it's gonna be because he's gonna raise up messengers like you that say, this is first. This isn't like, well, let's get anointed for the revival and then we'll get around to loving God if, if we get time. No, this is what it's all about. Because we're gonna love God before the revival, during the revival, and after the revival. It's the same priority to love him first. That's the first. We're not waiting for revival to love him. And we're gonna love him in the revival, then when the revival's over, we're gonna love him. That's the thing we're called to. Top of page four. Just a couple more moments here. I want you to notice the significance of Jesus' last words. The last words of his earthly ministry, and then the last words after his resurrection, 60 years later, he appears to John on the island of Patmos. They say 60 years, nobody knows for sure, but John's elderly, and Jesus' last words are the book of Revelation. His last words are very, very uh, telling and insightful. He speaks to the seven churches of Asia. This is his last words in the Bible to the church, these, the message to these seven churches. I call it uh, the church after God's own heart. I did a 12-part series on this a couple years ago of just working through every line. The church after God's heart, the church that Jesus, this is what he would say to the church. And, and we want to form our ministries around those seven messages. But it's important to understand three of those churches, he corrected them. He goes, you're serving me, you're working hard, but you don't love me like you used to. And I have this against you. I do honor you for serving me. You're a faithful workforce, but you don't love me like you used to. And that was his last message, those seven messages to the seven churches to the body of Christ. Paragraph J, we'll go back to his earthly ministry. On Friday, six days before the Passover, which was the following Thursday night, was the Passover, Mary of Bethany pours this costly oil on him. Just six days before the Last Supper on that Thursday night that we've been talking about, John 13 to 17. And in Mark chapter 14, she breaks the oil. We have the John 12 version and the Mark 14. But in, in what it says in verse six, when she broke the, 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 poured the costly ointment on his head, they said, we could have used this money for the poor. In verse six, Jesus said, leave her alone. She's done good for me. He goes, matter of fact, verse nine, what this woman's done, everywhere the gospel will go, her extravagant love to me will be highlighted. So Jesus is saying, this is what extravagant love means to me. I will, he vindicated her. Matter of fact, Mary of Bethany, to my knowledge, is the only person in the gospels Jesus vindicated publicly two times. First, Martha said, my little sister Mary, she's sitting at your feet. He said, you're troubled. Leave Mary alone. She's done the good thing. That's in, in Luke 12, uh, 10. And here in Mark 14, he vindicates her again twice to the, in front of the apostles. He vindicates her. I mean, I don't know that he ever vindicated one of them. But I go, he really loved the devotion of this girl. She's never found in the book of Acts, never known in church history, in revivals. But the Lord says, I want you to know. He shouted it on six days before one of his last things he did before he died. Six days before he, the Last Supper, he goes, I want you to know how I feel about this kind of love. Paragraph K. Now it's a few days after that, uh, he, after that event with Mary. Paragraph K. It's now we're back on Tuesday. 
his last message, his last message, public message before he goes to the cross. Somebody goes, I wonder what Jesus would say if he had one more message. I go, I know what he would say. It's Matthew 22. <laughs> Here it is. And then that, this is it after Matthew 22. He stands in front of the people. He's never said this publicly. He's in Jerusalem. It's on Tuesday. He's gonna go, the Last Supper is Thursday. His last message, he stands up and he goes, let me tell you something I've never told you before. The kingdom of God is like a king arranging a marriage for his son. My father is the king. I am the son, and there's a marriage being planned, and the wedding is ready because I'm going to pay the price in two days, three days on Friday. I'm going to pay the price for this bride. I'm going to purchase her with my own blood. Later on that day, that very same day on Tuesday, he spoke of himself. It's the great end time message of Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus' most prominent detailed end time message, two chapters, Matthew 24, 25. It's still on Tuesday. Now he's only talking to the apostles in private. He presents himself as a bridegroom, a king, and a judge. And you can look at that later. We have other messages on that where we break it down. But he goes, I'm a king with power. I'm a bridegroom with deep desire for my people. And I'm a judge with zeal to confront everything that hinders love and to remove it. So he, sets him, he shows himself as a bridegroom, king, and judge. But he tells them in the midst of this message in Matthew 24 and 25, he goes, you got to get oil because I'm a bridegroom coming and when I come back, you have to have the oil of intimacy cultivated in your life. I just don't want faithful service as a workforce. There's an oil of intimacy that will be critical in that day. I don't think the apostles fully got it yet. He goes, think back a week ago when Mary pulled the oil out. There's some even connection to those two things. Paragraph L. We can only interpret the 150 chapters on the end times. We can only interpret it in a right way when we see Jesus through the lens of a bridegroom, king, and judge. Meaning the book of Revelation storyline, we only get it if we see a bridegroom with deep desire for love. He's going to reveal it and impart it. In paragraph M, the very last message, this is still Matthew 22. Jesus said, he started earlier that day, he said, the kingdom of God is like a king arranging a wedding for his son. Later on, just a little bit later, he stands up and he declares the prophetic declaration over Israel. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now that looks like he's just telling them what they ought to do because a lawyer asked him the question, hey, what's the main thing? He goes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. But he was saying more than you ought to love God. He was saying that. He was actually referencing the prophecy from Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 is the prophecy Moses gave that in the generation the Lord returns, Israel's going to supernaturally love God. Their hearts are going to be circumcised. And Jesus' last prophecy here, first he says, the kingdom of God is like a king arranging a wedding. Then a little while later he goes, Israel, you shall love the Lord your God. Not just ought to, yes, ought to. You will by the power of God. That was his last declaration of Israel. Then he went into private ministry after that. In paragraph N, Jesus talks about, and he goes, if you love me, we'll talk about this more next week, you will be loved by my Father. And I will love you, and I will manifest my heart presence on your heart. 
And I got a little bit on that you can read. We'll look at this more next week. I'll come to you. I'll make, we'll make our home with you. Now, it's a little confusing because he goes, if you love me, my Father will love you. We think, well, doesn't the Father, God so love the world, he loves everyone? Yes, he loves everyone redemptively. He loves the, uh, the most perverse unbeliever. He loves everyone redemptively. But what he's saying here is that I will enjoy the relationship of those who say yes to me. I will rejoice and delight in the communion and fellowship. So it's not the redemptive love. He loves everybody no matter what. But when people love him in return, he's saying, I enjoy the relationship. I delight in the choices you're making. And it's love in that other heightened way. It's a different type of thing. It's not a contradiction that he only loves people who love him. It's a different expression of love. It's his delight in enjoyment of the relationship. Well, amen and amen. Let's stand before the Lord and let's ask him to talk to our hearts and speak to us. Worship team, I should have called you up with a three-minute notice. <laughs> I spaced. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Father, here we are before you. Lord, we say we want to love you with all of our heart. This is, if you can touch those men, and there are no super saints, and you are coming for a billion so harvest that will be like a prepared bride in the most sinful, dark generation in history, then Lord, here I am. If you can touch them, you can touch me. I'm gonna ask you, Father, you said anything I ask you, you would give to us. I'm asking you for a greater anointing, a greater grace to love you. I'm asking you, I'm believing you, Father. I'm using the prayer of faith to see love grow in my heart, not just to see circumstances blessed. That too, of course. But I want to see love grow in my heart. I ask you, Abba, right now. I'm asking you all across this room. We are agreeing with this prayer. Would you allow us to grow in love that results in greater even obedience because we love you? We say, here we are in our weakness. Lord, we know that weak love is still real love. We know that you see the cry of our heart, and we're asking you for a greater measure of grace. Here we are, Lord. I just want a heart that is. I want to pray for folks. Just, just, just keep singing. I'm going to pray for folks that the Lord has been stirring you just in the last weeks even about being a messenger of calling people to the first commandment as first. Not just power, not just blessing, but the commandment to love God is the first priority. You say, no, I want to lock into that. I'll pray those, I'll, I'll preach that other stuff too, but this is going to be first. And if the Lord has been stirring you really recently, I would like you to come up here and I want to ask the Lord to increase that. I remember it was the summer of 1988 when the Lord spoke to me in a very dramatic way with Song of Solomon. He said, I want you to make this the priority of your life. And I couldn't even understand what he meant, hardly. And I said, Lord, help me to do this. Make this my number one message to reveal and leading to the impartation of your affections. Singers, musicians, media missionaries, blogs, social media, 
discipling young people, children's church workers, house church leaders, singers, musicians. This is your number one message. You're saying that's it, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Beloved, there's no, it's not too late to start. The enemy tells people, you've gone too far, it's too late, you're disqualified. That's a lie. Today's the day. Today's the new day for you. Today is a new day for you. Lord, we want a heart fully in love. We want to impart this message to people. Give us dreams, visions. Give us living understanding, impartation. right now. I ask for a messenger anointing to come on them in a new way. Media messengers, new songs, new music, new curriculum to disciple children. Holy Spirit, raise up messengers in this house. Unashamedly calling people to the first commandment is first. Lord, if we ask for fullness, come and touch our hearts. Lord, like a mighty rushing wind, come and touch us. God to love God. Flow like a river, Lord. Give us your
others to come up. If you would, just come up and put your hand on their shoulder. Say, Holy Spirit, give them more. The Lord gives more when the church prays for the church. The Lord's not speaking to you right now, saying this is a new thing for you, but come and pray for some of them. Take a moment or two for two or three folks. Lay your hand on your shoulder. Say, Lord, release an increase of grace. I just want a heart that is Increase of grace, Lord. Give them prophetic dreams. Come and seal their heart with fire. Come and seal their heart with fire, Lord. I just want a heart that is full.
coming love. God, I love you and I love my brother. I'm becoming love. God, I love you and I love my brother. I'm becoming love. God, I love you and I love my brother. I'm becoming love. God, I love you and I love my brother. I'm becoming love. God, I love you and I love my brother. I'm becoming love. Come like fire, Lord. God, I love you. Come like wind. And I love my brother. I'm becoming love. Lord, we ask for grace to overcome shame or grief or fear or bitterness of betrayal. I'm becoming love. The ability to overcome and not be troubled by the power of love. Show us the power of love. taking over. Every room of my heart, love is taking Oh, we love to love you, Jesus. Every room of my heart, your love is taking over. Every room of my heart, love is taking over. Every room of my heart, love is taking over.
faith, Lord. Enlarge my heart to love you. You said anything we ask. This is what we ask. Let me 
Strip on every song I write. Even my enemies, let them know. 